Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, I am Nicholas Gordon, host of the Asian Review of Books podcast, done in collaboration with the New Books Network. In this podcast, we interview fiction and nonfiction authors working in, around, and about the Asia-Pacific region. Opium is an awkward commodity. For the West, it's a reminder of some of the shadier and best forgotten parts of its history. For China, and maybe a few other countries, it's a symbol of national humiliation, best left to the past, unless it needs to shame a foreign country. But the opium trade survived for decades after the Opium Wars, through to the end of the Second World War. How did this trade actually work? How is it possible to trade a good that was at best tolerated in the strange gap between legal and illegal? This trade, Lupir Pierre Thilly covers in his book, The Opium Business, History of Crime and Capitalism in Maritime China, published by Stanford University Press last year. Peter Thilly is a professor of history at the University of Mississippi. He is currently also working on a global microhistory of the 1853 small sort uprising. Today, Peter and I talk about opium, how people traded this quasi-legal good, and how it changed, including a surprising source of illicit drugs in the region. So, Peter, thank you for, for coming on the show today. You know, I want to maybe talk about how the opium trade, maybe not quite gets its start, but gets its start after the opium wars, when China is defeated and, and it's forced to kind of open up its ports um, to the West. How does the opium trade then get rooted in China kind of in that initial period? Sure, absolutely. And, and thanks so much, Nicholas, for having me on this uh exciting uh, to be on this podcast, which I've, I've listened to for a while now. So um, what happens after the opium wars, right? How does, how does the opium trade get rooted? Um, it's, it's, it's a fascinating moment. The trade had, had built up illegally, at least on the import end, into China for, for decades and really expanded just incredibly in the 1830s before the war. And the treaty that concluded the Opium War um, didn't mention the drug, right? Uh, it, it was not legislated in any clear way. And so they opened these five treaty ports to the to British, you know, trade and commerce and British consuls and things like that. And and you have now in, in each of these ports, these these new diplomatic relationships have to be sort of forged between these British consuls and the, the, the local Chinese officials, and it's usually a collection of a couple, right? Like a, a Daotai, a, a circuit intendant, maybe a couple others. And they have to, they have to together uh, figure out what to do about this, what to do about the fact that the biggest, highest volume import trade is, still doesn't have a legal framework around it. And so they just decide to um, take the easy way for that, that decade and a half and, and keep it the way it had been operated in the 1830s illegally before the Opium War um, on, on ships offshore outside of the port, except in Shanghai, they had a kind of river system set up that I don't talk about in the book. But in, in the other ports, they, they, they used receiving ships, which were, you know, big, giant kind of usually not that seaworthy kind of old, but big ships that you could anchor uh, for months and months and have smaller uh, better ships bring opium to them and carry the silver away. And so it was on these ships that the Chinese merchants would come out and, and buy opium. And, and as in the 1830s, there's, there's something in between corruption and taxation surrounding that in terms of a state regulatory framework. There were 
there were officials who sent delegates out to these ships and stamped the chests of opium for paying fees. And, and a lot of this stuff was negotiated and fairly standardized as the way we think of kind of taxation. So that's, that's really sort of how it gets rooted is in this kind of moment where, where neither the, the British or the Qing want to kind of force the issue uh, in the 1840s after the war. Um, the British aren't going to demand the sort of open recognition of the opium trade at that moment, and the Qing aren't going to demand the abolition of it at that moment. So um, really what happens is that bribery corruption turns into formal taxation, um, especially in the 1850s and the crisis of the Taiping Rebellion and assorted kind of uprisings, it's fiscal crisis, uh, as also dealing with the indemnity, all this money owed the British after the opium wars. So, you know, we're out of money and here's the largest import trade uh, that we have. How about we start taxing it? And so that's um, when when you have these various kind of schemes of taxation start to evolve in the late 1850s. And once once that happens, it's it's really sort of firmly rooted. The state needs the revenue. They've got relationships with key opium merchants and and business really starts to happen. Um, yeah, I mean, it, it's it's it really is funny where, again, you have these ships out in the harbor and like everyone, so everyone knows what they're doing, but everyone's kind of maybe turning a blind eye. It, it's a fascinating interaction between um, between the Western countries and I guess both China, but also local Chinese officials. It really is a local story. You know, it's preferable. They, I think, you know, it's like hard to, hard to sort of quantify, but I, you know, I think local officials liked that system better than after it became co-opted by the central state because they got to keep the revenue local. Right. And that was always a problem is once, once the, the, the central state in Beijing gets an interest in, you know, forms of taxation, they, they're shipping the money out of the province. And, and so um, in, those, in those early years when it's kind of on that line, you know, the, the, the admiral or whoever, the, you know, a naval official who's collecting some of these fees can use it to pay his, his soldiers um, when, instead of having to ship it off to, to Beijing or something. Um, so so it, it is really very much a local versus national revenue story as well. I mean, speaking speaking of revenue, I mean, there's a there's a term that pops up a couple times in your book, um, and I'm going to ask you to actually define it for me, um, which is tax farming. So, what what exactly <laughs> was this system of tax farming, and how did that connect to to the opium trade? Sure, tax farming is is sort of a shorthand for uh, kind of a variety of related systems that you could talk about in a more kind of modern term as privatization right, of, of tax collection. I think there's there's key differences, but one of the examples I always think of is like uh, the, the state of Illinois in the U.S., right? The toll, the toll collections on the highway uh, uh, got privatized several decades ago where the state was like, we're not going to collect these taxes anymore. We will hire a private company to collect them for us. And that's sort of what we're talking about here. In the 19th century, it was especially uh, across Asia common to have commodity-based tax farms. So like if the state wants to tax, you know, a certain industry, it's, it's just easier to find the wealthiest merchants participating in that industry and, and kind of negotiate a quota with them of how much they have to pay a year. And that's the kind of origin of this for, for opium in, in various parts of Southeast Asia. So in, in British Penang and Singapore 
and then you know uh, across the kind of Netherlands Indies, uh, opium taxation. Uh, the, thinking about um, the distribution of opium, right? You can tax opium in a lot of different ways, um, and I'm talking here about the actual like like a retail tax, right? If you go to the opium den, how much the proprietor of that opium den sort of has to pay up, right? Um, those are run by tax farms, these um, uh, kind of retail taxes. And they're sort of these territorial monopolies where they control the import of opium into that territory and sell it at a fixed rate and are responsible to pay, up, pay out to the state uh, a quota um, per year. So those are auctioned off in most of Southeast Asia, um, especially British and Dutch uh, colonies. Um, and, and the people... Uh, who are buying those tax farms in in the Netherlands, Indies, and and the British colonies tend to be uh, either from coastal southern Fujian, where where the story in my book t- takes place, or or um, you know the area around Hong Kong. Um, so uh, once the opium trade becomes legalized uh, in the late 1850s, or the Qing state is looking for methods to kind of tax opium in various ways. Um, this sort of comes together, right? And and China has its own sort of uh, related types of tax farms um, that have existed, but but I really do think it's the sort of expertise of these uh, returned uh, folks from Southeast Asia um, that kind of build this into the um, these legion farms, uh, opium legion uh, of the, the transport tax farms of the 1850s, 60s, and 70s. So they work along the similar lines to the ones in Southeast Asia. They're auctioned off every year for a quota, usually to a prominent merchant or coalition of merchants. And then, and and what the, the sort of the rub is in the book, um, one of the problems that this creates is the, that they have sort of a lot of authority, hmm. right? You privatize policing in, in a way by doing this. These guys uh, have their own giant police forces and they're trying to prevent smuggling and who who's smuggling are they trying to prevent? It's their competitors, right? Because the people who own the tax farm are are opium merchants. So it it blends kind of commerce and statecraft in in a way that I think is is ends up being kind of unproductive. I guess I would say. And I mean, what are and, and what are like non Chinese governments' attitude to all of this? I mean, it, you always get the sense that it's it's it's. If he was a, after the opium wars where they forced the issue, it then becomes a very, I think, at best arm's length relationship. Um, I, I mean, but, but what is that? What is actually kind of kind of the attitude of foreign governments towards this opium trade? It's it's really varying. It's very you know hypocritical. Certainly, right. Uh, the, a lot of times, you know, I, I read. I'm especially familiar when we talk about foreign governments with the consuls, with the people, you know, right. the representatives right. of foreign governments in China, and what they're saying and what they're thinking about, and and they can't complain enough about these tax farms and and that they're unmodern and that. They're, they're a stain and, and that they'll need to be wiped out for China to modernize and things like that. And, and what's, what's sort of like, what they never seem to acknowledge is that the British government is doing the same thing in, in their colonies. Um, so that is always sort of confusing to me, right? Like how there can be this, this um, cognitive dissonance among these consuls, you know, uh, referring to a practice that their own government uses, um, 
as as like peculiarly Chinese and unmodern, right? Um, so there is that sort of like uh, like racist disdain uh, as part of it. Um, you know, uh, there's there's so many varying. You, it's hard to summarize like attitudes of foreign governments because of um, how big they are and how diverse they are, right? Um, you've got missionaries who are against the opium trade from the beginning, and they're influential, right? And there's also big business, and and they like opium, and they hate anybody who talks about um, opium being a, sort of a, a moral responsibility of the British or something, right? So so. Generally speaking, those British who defend the opium trade put all of the blame on what they call like Chinese smugglers and corrupt Qing officials. Um, so, so there's that sort of strain as well, kind of circulating among foreign officials and foreign governments. That like the problem really is that the Chinese government is corrupt, not that not that the British uh, began this enormous um, illegal trade into China. Um, so there's, there's all these different kind of things that, that circulate, but I think over, over time, the consensus is towards centralization, uh, tax farms, uh, you know, eventually get abolished in Southeast Asia and, and, um, and in favor of centralized state monopolies and with a, with a goal of eventual prohibition. So you get this kind of, um, compromise between the people who need to make money off of opium, the states that need to make money revenue off of opium and the promise that eventually it will go away. So kind of as, as we kind of move through the history of, of this period, we start seeing um, synthetic drugs pop up. Um, I'm thinking of like morphine, uh, cocaine, I think mm-hmm. is part of this too, right? I mean, mm-hmm. I mean, how does, how does, how do these synthetic drugs change the dynamics of the drug trade in China and I guess East Asia more broadly? Yeah, they really change a lot of things. You know, um, there's other people who've written about consumption, right? That stuff is really different, right? Opium is, smells, um, morphine is is quiet, right? You can you can do it more secretively. So there's all that sort of stuff involved. But like in terms of the buying and selling of it, it's really interesting in in Fujian the the patterns that happen, um, like. Morphine is popular in, in Fujian um, and, and people use it. And there's just a million preparations coming from Taiwan. Locally, there's a morphine factory in Jinjiang County that runs for 20 years, employs like 400 people. They have bicycles that they deliver with. So there's locally produced morphine, you know, stuff coming from all over. Um, the cocaine it fits in really differently. There's there's a huge amount of cocaine that goes through the city of Xiamen, but uh, almost none of it stays there. It, it gets brought in from Taiwan and packaged and then exported to to South and Southeast Asia, especially South Asia, India, um, as well as, as Burma um, and Bangladesh. So, so there the there's this coastal Southern Fujian has this, you know, diasporic connection to Southeast Asia. And so cocaine kind of, emerges as like one one way to make money right there's there's people who sell it in Xiamen you can smuggle it into Singapore and sell it to somebody who'll take it on to Southeast Asia or South Asia and 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 make uh you know a good deal of money but nobody's using it in in southern Fujian as far as I could ever find um so yeah there is this 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 big sort of uh 
difference between those two drugs in particular and the way I kind of tell, tell the story um, of this particular location. Um, so then, I mean, so then how, how does the, you can talk about how these drugs then get exported, I think, elsewhere in the region. I think there's a chapter on, on Singapore and how, and how these drugs ended up having like brand names. Um, mm-hmm. And, and like, just, I mean, again, the idea that, that, that these drugs have like recognizable brands and logos, but then like, like how, how does, I guess, this export trade then kind of develop throughout the region, especially in places like Singapore? Yeah, sure. So like the, the branding really starts in the 19th century. There's these key, the, the original kind of opium is Benares and Patna um, coming, uh, the Bengal opium, and then Malwa is the third Indian opium. And Benares in particular in, um, uh, Benares and Patna uh, in, in southern Fujian are, are really popular. And, and pa- over time, Patna becomes uh, really popular. Sorry, Benares in the early 20th century. So like, a lot of the branding revolves around trying to like capture that kind of elite market, um, right? That there's there's like rich people opium and poor people opium, and you know there's locally produced southern Fujianese opium that they're kind of mixing in as early as the 1830s. But if you get once we're in the 20th century, right? There's there's a whole lot of sort of tastes and vintages, right? Everybody knows that the this year of Benares is is way better. Uh, and uh, I had a consul refer to it as opiage, <laughs> right? Like the year uh, and, and location that it comes from. And so that, that stuff goes back a long ways. And then in the early 20th century, um, it's directly related to this phenomenon I, I sort of glossed a moment ago of centralization, um, getting rid of the tax farms in Southeast Asia. It starts in the Netherlands, Indies and Vietnam. Uh, and then, and then the uh, British colonies follow suit, and so by by 1905, uh, 1910 or so, all of the um, uh, all across Southeast Asia now there are centralized state monopolies that are only selling one brand of state opium, and for a lot of the Chinese diaspora, it's not what they want. Um, and so that's, that's, I think where a lot of this stuff comes from is in, in places like Xiamen ports with direct steamship connections to all those places in Southeast Asia, migrants, tens of thousands going every month, um, can subsidize their trip, can get set up there by bringing some of this stuff over. And so, right. The, the branding is, is really attractive, I think, to the consumers overseas, um, and, uh, and yeah, the, the sort of connection of migration, um, and, and everything is right there. So yeah, that, that happens with opium with cocaine as well. The, um, the, the, there's a really kind of fascinating branding story because it, it revolves around this, this brand Fujitsuru, which, which you, you can tell sort of sounds Japanese, um, but nobody could ever successfully trace it to Japan. And it was the most popular brand of cocaine sort of across India and Southeast Asia. And my hypothesis is it's, is a creation of, of South China, um, that it was, that it was just a, a fake brand. Um, there were like four different labels, uh, that all kind of looked alike and, um, this is a, a place where you could get fake labels made pretty easily. <laughs> and, and so, so yeah, cocaine, uh, as well sort of has this branding story. You know, I mean, speaking, speaking of, of, of Japan, um, you know, one of the points where I had to, where I had to stop, um, in reading your book, cause it was just it, a thing I'd never really thought about, 
um, was the role that the that the Taiwanese community played, um, whether or not they were at people were actually Taiwanese or not. Um, but just the idea of just the Taiwanese community and Taiwan being a hub for things like organized crime and drug production and smuggling is just like a weird thought to me, given, I mean, obviously what Taiwan is like today. Um, but I mean, but as you know, it's related to imperialism. It's related to Japan, sorry, Taiwan being a Japanese colony and ex- extraterritoriality and all of this stuff. So, so how do all of these things interplay when it came to um, I guess the drugs trade and I guess v- the vice sector in general in in China. Yeah, absolutely. And there's some really fascinating new scholarship on this um, uh, out and coming out. So this is this is a topic that's getting more attention. Um, you know, it stems from extraterritoriality, right? The the um, foreign governments dating back to the Opium War had this right that that they're citizens when in China would be subject to their own laws rather than China's laws as administered by uh, their consular representatives in those places. So really, beginning after the Opium War, there was this immediate problem that neither the British or the Chinese foresaw, which is like, what about then all of these Chinese people who grow up in Singapore? And and uh, what happens if they come sort of, quote unquote, back to China? Are they British? Uh, or are they Chinese? Um, and and that is a you know uh, that's a, that's one of the things I'm sort of working on here with this second project is that that original moment. So if you fast forward then to 1896 when uh, when the the Meiji Japan and the Qing Empire have their war, and it gets settled and Japan is is granted Taiwan as a new colony. All of a sudden, you've got tens of thousands of people who are going back and forth between what is now Japan and China, right? And what had been China and, and uh, more recently a province, you know, as of the 1870s before that, um, you know, a couple of prefectures of Fujian on the East coast of Taiwan. So, or the, the, whatever. Um, So, so anyways, after 1896, you, there's just this opportunity for, tens and tens of thousands of people in coastal southern Fujian to sort of register and claim that they are Taiwanese and therefore Japanese imperial citizens. And why that's attractive is a lot of reasons. The Japanese consul is not as interested, uh, I think, as the British consul in um, issues of like reputation when, when, when Japanese citizens uh, commit crimes in the city. Um, the Japanese consuls don't seem to be uh, all that worked up about it, right? They don't seem to feel the need to administer Japanese law on these people um, as as harshly as they might uh, in Japan, or as harshly as uh, some of these British consuls wanted to administer British law on their populations. And and so you the the you said vice industry, right? The whole city gets taken over by these gangs of some of them from Taiwan, some of them had never been to Taiwan, but managed to sort of get citizenship or rent it from somebody. Um, And and so, yeah, prostitution, um, gambling, the sort of classic uh, tax farms that that most Chinese cities had uh, get taken over by by Taiwanese businessmen, um, as well as, as opium. And this is the sort of the most opportune 
the timing is really good for these people because the 1920s, as they're sort of coming to power, these Taiwanese gangs within the city, um, this is when the city over and over again changes hands administratively. It's the warlord period of Chinese history and and, and the city is just, uh, you know, one day, uh, one year in the hands of this kind of Kuomintang naval commander. And then the next year, somebody else takes it over. And each time that happens, it's an opportunity to renegotiate uh, what they refer to as the Opium Suppression Bureau, which is what in the 1920s, China was the state opium monopoly. And has operated like a tax farm, um, uh, sold off uh, to the highest bidder. Uh, who could monopolize and control opium within the city. And so usually it's opium merchants doing this and shamans often run through the city's chamber of commerce. And, uh, and yeah, by the ni- by 1925 or so between 19 after 1925, every entity that bid on su- successfully bid on and became sort of directors of opium prohibition bureaus in Southern Fujian were, were Taiwanese as well as people that warlords contracted with to collect um, uh, taxes on opium poppy harvests in the countryside, which is another really lucrative uh, tax farm. So one more question on on the history and really, I mean, the the end of this history. You know, how does the the how does this opium trading network um, end. I mean, because it's whatever network existed clearly doesn't exist today. So, 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 how does this network die off? Yeah, um, in a lot of different ways, I guess. You know, World War II um, upsets a lot of networks, right? Upsets mm-hmm. a lot of shipping lanes. Upsets a lot of opportunities. Um, uh, uh, all kinds of things like that, right? There's, there's. There's shifting uh, blockades and things like that, right? Xiamen can't really be an entrepot to the world when it's Japanese and the surrounding counties are controlled by the Kuomintang, right? Um, because it was Xiamen's, that city's relationship to the surrounding counties that made it a source of migration and things like that to other places. So, like, that's just sort of one example, right, of how war kind of disrupts that stuff. And then the, in the aftermath of, of World War II, of course, is the Chinese Civil War. And so uh, at the late 1940s, you know, the Kuomintang is setting about trying to arrest and prosecute everybody who worked with the Japanese. And that means uh, lots and lots of opium traders. So it's really popular, you know, to to identify who ran these um, opium monopolies for the puppet Japanese puppet governments and stuff like that. So prosecuting drug people became really popular in the 1940s during the civil war. Um, And then the, the, you know, the communists um, and this is here, I'm sort of out of my element um, past my, my research timeline. Um, But the the communists shut it down is really when it ends um, in, uh, in the 1950s. Um, You know, the, the communist party is my understanding up in Yenon had done some, uh, similar to other kind of entities all across China in the 20s and 30s, taxed opium in, in certain ways uh, up there. But but by the time they were coming to power, um, uh, I think that was over, is my understanding. Um, and and the, the way in which kind of international trade uh, shut down um, also sort of contributed to this. It's also the moment when all of these Southeast Asian colonies that were saying, you know, we're going to 
centrally monopolize opium with the long goal, long-term goal of prohibition. A lot of times that long-term goal was kind of coming due um, around, you know, uh, the 1940s. It's also um, across Southeast Asia, the moment of decolonization and the revolutionary governments taking over um, were fundamentally uninterested in having legal opium. So um, all of these things kind of came together. So I think for my for my um, final question, you know, you mentioned in the introduction to your book, like it, it's it's very hard to study um, history of the opium business because of its kind of moral stain, um, which which of course persists today. I'm reminded of I remember when um, when Richard Branson was uh, was was had a campaign against Singapore executing someone accused of low level drug smuggling. And Singapore's official response was basically, uh, we're not going to listen to anybody who's from the UK, which peddled drugs during the opium war. Um, but anyway, I mean, that just shows that, 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 that the moral stain of, of opium kind of continues to today. But, but, how, but how did that affect your ability to kind of research this as a historian? I mean, um, was it because of, I guess all the all the shadiness around it was it was it difficult to actually kind of study um, material on this? Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah, you know, like the the uh, even when the drug was legal, I found that it was treated um, in a lot of ways like an illegal trade. So, like especially like newspapers, you know, newspapers these commercial newspapers of the late 19th and early 20th century, like really they, people writing for those things cared about business, right? And they reported on business extensively. And when it comes to opium, they sort of like bit their tongue, right? Um, like uh, all of it in, in Chinese, the the term I kept coming up against in Shunbao when they talk about, you know, I was trying to figure out who's buying the uh, opium tax farms um, of the late 19th century, right? As they go up for auction, like, who are the people bidding? Who who wins the bid? And in in Shunbao, which is like reporting on this stuff, they say Mo Shang, like uh, 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 a a merchant, <laughs> like a mer- anonymous merchant <laughs> bid on it, right? Like they they won't give people's um, names, even when it's legal. Um, and then and then you have all these other periods when it's illegal, right? So it's people trying to to keep secrets. So yeah, there's this question of like. Are you only finding the incompetent ones or the unlucky ones? Are you, um, how can you tell the whole story? And, and, and it's really tricky. You know, thankfully, um, there was just so much kind of supporting documentation at each step of the way, right? Each, each chapter has its own sort of challenges, but like I was able to sort of triangulate in, I think, productive ways in each chapter between archives between sources, right? So where the, I get certain information out of the Chinese government that would be really helpful, certain information out of the British government that would be really helpful. And I can, I can tell a story with the two of those things um, that, that you can't with just one of them. Um, so that's, you know, it, it does involve um, uh, a lot of uncertainty though. Um, uh, yeah. Well, actually maybe, maybe kind of one more question. I mean, in, at the end of your book, okay, we talked about kind of your introduction, but now about your conclusion, you know, there's, there is this talk about, was it narco-capitalism, um, you know, drug smelling networks in, in, 
in Latin America, South America, elsewhere in the world. Um, I mean, did you notice any parallels in studying uh, the opium trade during the 19th and early 20th centuries and the way people talk about drug smuggling networks today, whether in, again, Latin and South America or Central Asia or Southeast Asia or wherever um, we see drug smuggling networks today? You know, I think there is like the thing that the occurred to me at least was that there 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 does seem to be a sort of like a there are characteristics there are patterns that develop in these sort of like places that become um drug hotspots right so you think about like there's a term um in the discourse about latin america called plaza which is just sort of like it, when it, when it, when we're talking about the drug trade it's it's like a city like um, uh, El Paso um, uh, on the border with Mexico, where where a huge amount of the drug trade gets funneled through, right? Like a choke point. Um, and and so yeah, I, I, I did have a lot of fun kind of thinking about um, Xiamen, this city uh, in the late nineteenth and early twentieth century, like why. Why did it sort of take on this role? Um, and, and when did it take on this role? And it was really sort of like Xiamen wasn't important when the drug was legal in the second half of the 19th century. It was really important in the 1830s when it was illegal. And it became really important again uh, after 1910 when it became illegal again. So like why? Um, why and how was that the case? And, and, and how can that be compared to, to somewhere like, I don't know, the golden triangle, uh, today or, or, um, uh, yeah, certain parts of, of central and South America. So that's, uh, you know, I, I think there's interesting kind of things to pursue. I also, you can't take things too far. You know, I'm a, I'm a, I'm a historian at heart, right? I, context is, is everything. Um, so, so I think it's, you know, there's interesting ways to sort of compare across these things, but, um, I'm, I'm rooted in this particular story, uh, more than anything. Well, I think that's a great place to end our conversation with Peter Thilly, author of the opium business, history of crime and capitalism in maritime China. Peter, we actually have actually have two final questions for you, uh, which are, uh, where can people find your work and, uh, what's next for you? What do you think the next project might be? Um, yeah, so uh, where people can find my work, I don't have a centralized place for this. I think if you Google my name, you can probably get my, my work website. Supposedly, the University of Mississippi is um, launching a new website. I have a very outdated faculty profile right now with the incorrect title to this book that came out last year. So, um, <laughs> but uh, that is probably where you can find my work. Uh, what I'm working on next is is a, is a maybe a more interesting question. Uh, hopefully, at least I'm I'm really absorbed in this story about the uh, small sword uprising. So, a secret society uprising in the 1850s took over the city of Xiamen, where we've been talking about, as well as Shanghai, but had this kind of leadership that was um, diasporic. It came from uh, folks who grew up in Singapore, um, really this kind of first generation of people who grew up in Singapore. And then the, um, the aftermath of the Opium War happened and they had opportunities to go to uh, their kind of ancestral homeland where they'd never been and and find jobs that were particular to their skill sets. So, you know, people who were the 
um, the linguist for the British consul, right? Walking around with the British consul, um, translating with local people, right? Because they could speak Malay and they could speak Southern Fujianese. Um, so, so people who had that job, people who worked for these opium firms doing the similar type of thing, um, those were the leaders of this uprising. And they were kind of using this revival of the Ming dynasty language that other secret societies used at the time, but they're clearly sort of different. So, so I'm really sort of getting into the question of like, who, the, who were they? Um, what, what did they want? Like, what did they envision creating with this uprising? What was the kind of state? Uh, I, I, I'm still sort of puzzled by like what the end game was um, with, with this uprising. So that's, that's how I'm reading the sources right now. So you can follow me, Nicholas Gordon, on Twitter at Nick R.I. Gordon. That's N-I-C-K-R-I-G-O-R-D-O-N. You can go to AsianReviewBooks.com to find other reviews, essays, interviews, and excerpts. Follow on Twitter at Book Reviews Asia. That's reviews plural. And you can find many more author interviews at the New Books Network at NewBooksNetwork.com. We're on our favorite podcast apps, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher. Rate us, recommend us, share us with your friends to support us interviewing those writing in, around, and about Asia. Next week, join us for an interview with Tanvi Srivastava and her translation of The War Diary of Ashasan from Tokyo to Nataji's Indian National Army. But before then, Peter, thank you so much for joining me today. Thank you, Nicholas. This is my pleasure.